Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 45, the book of Acts, chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 finds Paul leaving the tense situation of Ephesus after being caught up in a riot started by that silversmith guild over his teaching about idols not being real gods. Now what's important to remember about this event is what it teaches us about how the Gentile world viewed Judaism and the way and how the way and Judaism viewed one another. And when we are misinformed about this, that's when all sorts of wrong-minded Christian doctrines and anti-Jewish attitudes are born. Now we saw in chapter 19 that the silversmiths perceived the members of the way as simply a peculiar group of Jews practicing their own brand of Judaism. Never mind that a few Gentiles had joined that group. And whereas the local Jews that the Ephesians were used to dealing with showed an acceptable degree of respect and, and tolerance for the gods that were typically worshipped in Ephesus, the most important of those being the goddess Artemis, Paul, as the highly visible spokesman of the way, was considerably less cordial in his very public denunciation of idols in general. The Ephesian Gentiles didn't have enough knowledge about Jews to be able to make nuanced dis uh, distinctions between the various sects of Judaism. So they just kind of saw all Jews as basically the same. All factions of Judaism is just various parts of the same religion. Thus the Ephesian riot was aimed at Jews in general. Now the way considered themselves as a faction of Judaism. Yes, they had some Gentile converts to the faith of Jesus Christ. But Judaism had always attracted converts. In fact, we can go back to the exodus from Egypt and see that thousands upon thousands of non-Hebrews joined up with Israel. Remember the Bible calls them a what? A mixed multitude. As they began their trek to the promised land. The way, as of this point in the book of Acts, was still majority Jewish still being led by Jewish leadership. Well, mainstream Jews also agreed that the way was a faction of Judaism. There's no recorded claim by rabbis that the way was not Jewish. Rather, in time, the rabbis claimed that the way was heretical although that was an accusation that they regularly tossed back and forth at each other the rabbis did and the factions that they led didn't, didn't see eye to eye with each other on certain doctrines however there eventually was an effort among the more mainstream sects of Judaism 
to excommunicate the way. By that time, Gentiles may well have represented the majority of believers and Gentile leadership began to surpass Jewish leadership. So sometime just before 100 AD, the Berchat Haminim was enacted. Now this is better known in English as the benediction against the heretics. Essentially this prayer became part of a group of Jewish benedictions called Shimone Esrai that was practiced in synagogues throughout the known world. Now if you look up that term in an encyclopedia or on the internet or just read about it in Christian commentaries it will inevitably say that it was a, a curse against the Christians. But in fact, that gives us the entire, entirely wrong impression. The Jews had little interest in religion outside of Judaism. Religions the Gentiles practiced, they didn't care about. Rather, the Birchat Hamanim was directed at Jews who followed Yeshua as the Messiah. Not Gentiles who followed Yeshua. So this was not a benediction against the church as we typically think of it. Rather, this was a benediction directly aimed at the Jewish membership and the Jewish leadership of the way. Bottom line, as of the time of Acts chapter 20, the way and its membership, Jew and Gentile, were seen universally as but one of several factions of Judaism. Now, this would change, but not until after the close of the New Testament writings, which would not occur for a few more decades after the time of the book of Acts. Well, let's read Acts chapter 20 together. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1388. Thirteen eighty eight Acts chapter twenty. After the Fuhrer died down, Shaul Paul sent for the Talmudim, that's the disciples, and encouraged them. Then he took his leave and set out on his way to Macedonia. He went through that area and after saying much to encourage them, passed on to Greece, where he spent three months. And as he was preparing to set sail for Syria, he discovered a plot against him by the unbelieving Jews, so he changed his mind, and he decided to return by way of Macedonia. Now, Sopater from Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, as did Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy and uh, Tychius, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Now these men went on and waited for us in Troas, while we sailed from Philippi after the days of Matzah. Five days later, we met them in Troas, where we spent a week. On Motzei Shabbat, where we were gathered to break bread, Shaul addressed them, and since he was going to leave the next day, he kept talking until midnight. 
Now there were many oil lamps burning in the upstairs room where we were meeting. And there was this young fellow named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill. And as Paul's drash went on and on, Eutychus grew sleepier and sleepier. Till finally he went sound to sleep and he fell from the third story to the ground. And when they picked him up, he was dead. But Shaul went down and threw himself onto him and put his arms around him and said, Don't be upset, he's alive. Then he went back upstairs, broke bread, broke the bread and ate. And he continued talking with them until daylight and then he left. So greatly relieved, they brought the boy home alive. Well, we went on ahead to the ship and we set sail for Assos where we were planning to take Paul aboard. He had arranged this because he wanted to go there by land. Now, after he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and we went on to Mytilene. The next day we sailed from there and arrived off Chios. The next day we crossed over to Samos and the day after that we reached Miletus. For Shaul had decided to bypass Ephesus on his voyage in order to avoid losing time in the province of Asia because he was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, in time to celebrate Shavuot. But he did send from Miletus to Ephesus, summoning the elders of the Messianic community. And when they arrived, he said to them, You yourselves know how from the first day I set foot in the province of Asia, I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with much humility and with tears, in spite of the tests I had to undergo because of the plots of the unbelieving Jews. You know that I held back nothing that could be helpful to you and that I taught you both in public and from house to house, declaring with utmost seriousness the same message to Jews and Greeks alike. Turn from sin to God and put your trust in our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Yerushalayim. I don't know what will happen to me there other than in every city the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit keeps warning me that imprisonment and persecution await me but I consider my own life of no importance to me whatsoever as long as I can finish the course ahead of me the task I received from the Lord Yeshua to declare in depth the good news of God's love and kindness now listen I know that none of you people among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I testify on this day, I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from proclaiming to you the whole plan of God. Now watch out for yourselves, for all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has placed you as leaders to shepherd God's messianic community, which he won for himself at the cost of his own son's blood. I know that after I leave, Savage wolves will come in among you and they won't spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise, teach perversions of the truth in order to drag away the disciples after themselves. So stay alert. Remember, for three years, night and day with tears in my eyes, I never stopped warning you. Now, I entrust you to the care of the Lord and to the message of his love and kindness, for it can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who've been set apart for God. I have not wanted for myself anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have provided not only for my own needs, but for the needs of my co-workers as well. And everything 
I have given you an example of how, by working hard like this, you must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Yeshua himself, there is more happiness in giving than in receiving. When he had finished speaking, Shaul kneeled down with them all and prayed. They were all in tears as they threw their arms around his neck and kissed him farewell. What saddened them the most was his remark that they would never see him again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. It's a pretty emotional chapter. Other New Testament books, in addition to Acts, deal with Paul's missionary journeys and other and and, and so the information they have often intertwines and fills in blanks that Luke hasn't chosen to report. Sometimes, however, it can be challenging to exactly correlate an event in Acts with one in, say, for instance, Second Corinthians. Therefore, various scholars have differing views on their conclusions. Usually, however, there is a general consensus of opinion because often the differences among the Bible scholars are not based on the substance of the information, but rather whether or not that Bible commentator even believes that the, that the biblical information is accurate. So assuming the Bible is accurate, here is what we see happening as Acts chapter 20 opens. Paul has left Ephesus. He's intent on traveling through Macedonia. He traveled not by ship, probably on foot. And he visited a number of believers he had previously established. That was, this was Paul's custom. And when we weave what is written in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 into what we read in the first few verses of Acts chapter 20, then it seems as though Paul intended on meeting up with the disciple Titus in the city of Troas. Now Paul didn't stay in Troas very long, opting instead to now travel to Corinth. But Titus didn't come to Troas as apparently was expected. So Paul began journeying through Macedonia and in fact he did meet up with Titus there. Titus had been in Corinth and he brought good news with him that some disquieting situation that had been happening there, probably the situation that made Paul think he needed to go to Corinth, it had been resolved. Now it seems that Paul spent a fair amount of time in Macedonia, but we don't know for exactly how long. Next he went to Greece where he spent three months. Now likely this was in the winter when traveling was usually suspended or until the shipping lanes reopened. He probably spent a lot of this time in Corinth since that seemed to be where he was determined to go. Now the gathering of funds for the benefit of the poor believers in Jerusalem was still going on. So as winter was giving way now to spring, elders from the various congregations who were contributing funds gathered together at Corinth so they could sail with Paul to the Holy Land to deliver them. Now I want to flesh out the issue of the funds that were being collected. 
because not all of these funds were about charity to the poor believers in Jerusalem. Rather, see, there was a half shekel temple tax that all Jews, whether living in the Holy Land or the Diaspora, were expected to give to help maintain the operation of the temple. Well, since the Diaspora Jews resided a long distance from the temple, they would bring those taxes, which were thought of as an offering, on one of their pilgrimage feasts. It seemed that Shavuot had, for whatever reason, become the customary time to deliver those collected funds. Now, since only a relative few of the Diaspora Jews came to the temple on these occasions due to the extensive time and expense of making such a journey, the collected temple taxes of several synagogues might be entrusted to a representative who was able to make that trip. So the bulk of the funds that Paul was instrumental in collecting would have been more about the temple tax than actual charity for the poor. Now, as they were all on board a ship, or getting ready to board, Paul heard about a plot to kill him. And so he decided it was best to alter his plans. He went back to Macedonia, and he would then sail on a different ship from there, so he could foil the assassins. Now, the group of elders, however, they went on ahead with their plans. They sailed to Troas, and they would meet up with Paul there. The plot is said to have been hatched by unbelieving Jews. So now Paul and the elders from the several congregations are at Troas. And we learn that the group hadn't set sail from Philippi in Macedonia until after the days of matzah were completed. This is, of course, speaking about the spring season biblical festival of unleavened bread, which comes the next day after Passover. Now we need not get too technical about the mentioning of these festivals. Because see, the New Testament talks about them in the common manner of speaking they they used in that era. Now technically, Passover is a one-day festival. And it occurs on Nisan the 14th. Then on Nisan the 15th, next day, the seven-day festival of Matzah begins. In this era, for many years before it, the terms Passover and unleavened bread became interchangeable. Because out of practicality, the two feasts really combined to one eight-day-long event. So Jews tended to speak of the season as Passover or unleavened bread, even though they were really referring to both. What's important for us to understand is that the first day and the last day of matzah, that seven-day period of matzah, were festival Sabbaths. So no traveling, no regular work was done by Jews. Pretty much all travel plans were put on hold during that eight-day period. So that delayed Paul and the elders' departure, even though by now the shipping lanes had recently reopened. Now, of course, this meant that in seven more weeks, another festival would arrive, Shavuot. 
Pentecost in Greek. And like the Feast of Matzah, Shavuot was a pilgrimage festival. That meant that according to the Torah, all Jews were required to present themselves before God at the temple in Jerusalem. Now as we discussed before, relatively few diaspora Jews made that trip. It was long, arduous, expensive, and risky. But it broke the law of Moses to not go. In fact, we see that neither did Paul make that trip. Later in verse 16, we'll hear about Paul's great desire to get to Jerusalem in time for Shavuot. That is, he'd already broken the Torah commandment to be at the temple for the Feast of Matzah, and he didn't want to break another law by failing to show up for Shavuot. So the timing of his journey clearly had much to do with the timing of the biblical feasts. Well, now we come to a passage that has had an enormous impact on Christianity. Although you'd have to be a Bible commentator or a pretty exceptional Bible student to notice it. Verse 7 says that on the first day of the week the believers gathered together to break bread. And Paul kept teaching this group until about midnight. Now, what's so impactful about this, you might ask? Here is the verse that is foremost among institutional Christianity that declares, here's where we see Paul leave behind Sabbath worship and institute Sunday worship. This is the verse. Why was that conclusion drawn? Because it says that this group of believers met there in Troas on a Sunday, the first day of the week. But it goes further than that. It is also standard Christian doctrine that Paul also instituted communion as a part of every Sunday service for Christians because it says the group broke bread. That is, breaking bread is referring to the sacrament of communion. Now this is a most delicate subject, but we're going to face it. Notice that in the complete Jewish Bible, David Stern inserts the word Motzei Shabbat in place of first day. Now first of all, the word Motzei Shabbat is not there in the original Greek. However, I do think he's on to something. Motzei Shabbat means departure of the Sabbath. Departure of the Sabbath. So it refers to Saturday night. Now remember that in the Bible, Hebrews counted days as from sunset to sunset. So the seventh day, Shabbat, Saturday, when does it end? Sundown. Then the first day that we call Sunday begins immediately. After sundown, which ends Shabbat, Motzei Shabbat was celebrated either at home or in synagogues as a way to extend the joy of the Sabbath. This is not a biblical Torah commandment. It's a tradition. So it was a practice, you see, that was recognized by the synagogue 
but not by the temple authorities. However, it was the common practice in this era among Jews. Now, since follow me here. Since each new day begins when? Sundown. And sunlight was essential for most tasks, especially tasks in agriculture. People tended to work until the sun set so they could make the most out of the daylight hours. Thus they ate their evening meal after dark when the work day was over because work could no longer be accomplished. So upon Motzei Shabbat, which occurred once the sun set, which ended Shabbat, the evening meal for that day was eaten. For one reason, since Shabbat was now over, meal preparation and cooking could begin again. The common term in that day for eating, especially when it was referring to the evening meal, was breaking bread. Now part of the reason for using that term breaking bread, that's why it was adopted, is because the start at the start of a meal, a barakah, that is a standard blessing was recited and it involved literally breaking the bread and passing it around in pieces around the table. So breaking bread has nothing in the world to do with communion all right, in Jewish practice. It just refers to the standard blessing to begin a meal. But this brings up another issue. Was Paul actually instituting Sunday worship for believers and abandoning the customary Jewish day of communal worship, which was Saturday? Now let me begin by quoting to you from a well-known Messianic Jew who has authored many books about the importance of rediscovering our Jewish roots. He also created a wonderful Bible commentary on the New Testament and he wrote the complete Jewish Bible that most of you are holding, Dr. David Stern. And Dr. David Stern says this, listen carefully, I do not find the New Testament commanding a specific day of the week for worship. There can be no objection, whatever, to the practice adopted later by a Gentile-dominated church of celebrating the Lord's Day on Sunday, including Sunday night. But this custom must not be read backwards into New Testament times. On the other hand, Messianic Jews who worship on Saturday night rather than Sunday can find warrant for their practice in this verse. See, Paul wasn't changing anything. He wasn't instituting anything new. He was simply engaging in typical Jewish custom of gathering after the setting sun brought an end to Shabbat and then eating, breaking bread with his group of disciples. This custom was called Motzei Shabbat and Judaism has retained it to this day. Now by definition, first day comes immediately after seventh day, right? So indeed, Paul was meeting and teaching on the first day, Sunday. But this wasn't Christianity. This entire scene was all about Judaism. 
Now this brings also brings up the sensitive issue of whether it is right before the Lord to have a communal meeting of believers on Sundays. Or should it only occur on Saturday, Shabbat? Now I address this extensively in our study of the book of Nehemiah and you can read it or hear it if you want to review what I had to say about it in detail. I will, however, briefly summarize because I think little has divided Christianity from Judaism and Christianity from Messianic Judaism and even traditional Christianity from Hebrew roots Christianity than this issue. So here we go. First of all, there is no such concept in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, of any designated day of worship. It does not exist. God has not singled out any one day of the week as special or set apart for personal or communal worship above any of the other days. Nor has God prohibited any particular day of the week as off-limits for personal or communal worship. Second of all, Sabbath, Shabbat, is one thing only. The God-ordained day of rest. That's it. The Bible describes Shabbat as having no other purpose than for ceasing from our regular labors. Again, this is Old Testament or New Testament. Sabbath is not the biblical day of worship because there is no such thing. Third, the Jewish practice of having a weekly communal day where everyone goes to synagogue for prayer and worship on Shabbat is a Jewish tradition. It is not a biblical commandment. Nowhere in the New Testament will you find a law to meet together on Shabbat. Or will you find mention in the Old Testament of Jews having a regular worship meeting on the seventh day? This is because it was a custom that was developed by the synagogue system and the synagogue system didn't come into existence until after, well after, the Babylonian exile and after the close of the Old Testament. Fourth, the common accusation by some Messianic Jews towards Christians is that meeting for worship on Sunday is meeting on a pagan day. There is no such thing as a pagan day in the Bible. God created all seven of them. Further, the common Jewish practice of Motzei Shabbat is meeting on Sunday. Think about that. Next time somebody says that to you, say, well, don't you meet on Sunday? Yeah. They do if they practice Motzei Shabbat. It happens at the close of Saturday, Shabbat, after sundown. That's a must. It has to happen after sundown, meaning the day's changed. It's now Sunday. Motzei Shabbat is Sunday worship. Now, fifth, it is claimed that the Roman Emperor Constantine, in concert with the Roman Church, changed Sabbath 
from Saturday to Sunday for Christians. That is incorrect. Constantine abolished Sabbath altogether for Christians and instituted a new day called the Lord's Day, which was to be held on Sundays. As the historical record clearly states, he did this precisely to refute Jews whom he saw as wicked and having no place in Christianity. That is, from his standpoint, Christianity was to be a Gentiles-only faith. Since Jews met by custom on Saturdays, the Christians would then henceforth meet by custom on Sundays. The difference is that Sunday worship was by imperial decree and it became a church law. So Christians ceased celebrating Sabbath and instead saw it as a dead law thanks to Emperor Constantine. However, it was also no coincidence that the Mithraim, sun-worshipping religion, the most dominant religion in the Roman Empire at that time, was already using Sunday as its day of worship. Hence the name Sunday. So Constantine found it convenient and politically expedient to declare a Christian day of worship where none had existed before to be on Sunday, the same day as the sun god worshippers were assembling. And sixth of all, there is nothing wrong about meeting and worship in synagogue on Saturday nor meeting for a Christian service on Sunday. One has no more merit than the other. Both, hear me, both are designated days of worship created by man-made traditions, not by God. Further, these days are neither better nor worse for meeting for worship than any other day of the week. Therefore, if one wants to make Shabbat, Sabbath, your day of worship, to go along with God's day of rest, that's perfectly fine. But if one wants to make Sunday your day of worship as well as God's day of rest, your Sabbath, that is not fine. Sunday worship is, of course, acceptable. But Sabbath is the seventh day. Not any day we choose. What day we choose to meet in communal worship is our choice. But Shabbat is a permanent ordinance of God. It's not something humans can change at our whim. Now what I just told you is a combination of scripture and recorded verifiable history. It's not speculation. So once again, Paul and his disciples were, meet, were merely meeting immediately following Shabbat as was a standard custom of Judaism, still is. He was not instituting a new Sunday worship service. And he and his followers were eating a typical evening meal together. They were not having communion. Well, picking up again in Acts 20, verse 8. 
seems that Paul was doing what he does best. Preaching. And he went on and on and on until midnight. A young man named Eutychus was sitting on a window ledge. On a window ledge. He dozed off. And he fell out of the window. Now it might have been kind of funny. Except for one thing. He was on the third floor. The streets of Troas were paved with stones. So when he hit, the fall killed him. Now we're told that Paul, of course, ran downstairs whereupon he threw, threw his body on top of him. He embraced him. Then he said, don't worry, he's alive. Now a few things about this event. Luke, the writer of Acts, was present. Recall that Luke was a physician. Now I don't know how good of a doctor he was. But let's hope he knew how to tell a dead person from a live one. We know Luke is present because back in verse 5 we start to encounter more of the we phrases. That is, the author of Acts begins to talk about we and us making himself part of the action. So Luke was in Troas with this group of elders and Paul. But even more, verse 7 says, we were gathered to break bread. Luke was there in that upper room. Thus we have an eyewitness verification from a doctor. The boy was dead. And we have the eyewitness testimony of a resurrection from the dead by the same doctor. Now verse 11 once again mentions breaking bread and says this happened after the incident of the boy falling out of the window. Now it's very difficult to reconcile this with verse 7 except that apparently for whatever reason the eating didn't actually happen until around midnight. Now that could make sense. Because, see, meal preparation couldn't even begin until after dark. And perhaps the group became so engrossed in hearing Paul speak that food wasn't even on their minds. doesn't matter as far as reckoning what day it was. Because midnight is not when days change. Sunset is. So regardless, this was occurring on the first day of the week, Sunday. <clears throat> well, after a few days in Troas... It was time to leave. And at daybreak, everyone went to the docks and they boarded a ship for Assos. But Paul did not go with them. There was a, a maintained highway between Troas and, and Assos. It was about a 20-mile distance. So Paul walked it. Now, why did Paul walk instead of riding on a ship? All we're told is that essentially he decided to do it. Perhaps he just wanted a day to be lost in his own thoughts. Anyway, in Assos, Paul met up with the others. He boarded another ship to take, him, take them all to Mytilene. Now, this was the largest city on the island of Lesbos. And from there, they sailed to Chios, and then the following day to Samos, and then finally to Miletus. Paul decided to bypass Ephesus, we're told, although I'm pretty sure it's Curiosity aided him after all the riots and everything. Because he needed to get to Jerusalem in time for Shavuot in order to observe the commandment. Well, 30 miles north of Miletus was Ephesus. 
So Paul sent a messenger there asking some of the congregation elders to come to Miletus to meet with him. Now Paul had some things he felt he needed to say to these faithful leaders of the Ephesus congregation because he didn't think he would ever see them again. Well, starting in verse 18, Paul declares the faithfulness of his ministry to the elders not because he's bragging but in order to teach them how a minister should serve. Paul did as we should do. He lived it more than talking about it. A good example is far more powerful than good works. And one of the examples he gave them was how to set how he set aside his own personal risk in order to minister to them. See, Ephesus was perhaps the roughest test he had faced thus far. I mean, the unbelieving Jews there were the most adamantly opposed to him. And the unbelieving Gentiles had a vested economic interest in squashing Paul's viewpoint that, that the idols they made weren't real gods. Well, Paul recalls that he taught in public that others might listen, even though that invited retaliation. And he taught in private to both Jews and to Gentiles. He taught the same beneficial message to each group. Repentance and faithfulness. Repentance and faithfulness. And he taught these he taught that these two elements must both happen in order for there to be redemption. So because he did, I'm going to emphasize it right now for a few minutes as well. It is said, I've said it myself countless times, that salvation in Christ is a free gift from God. It comes from grace plus nothing. Yet that is true only to the point that we acknowledge that there is first, before grace, an eligibility test. And the eligibility test is we must sincerely repent to God for our sins against Him. We must. John the Baptist spelled this out. We have seen this same requirement spelled out and played out all throughout the book of Acts. We've even seen some new so-called believers that were baptized based on repentance of sins. We saw it back in, back in uh, Acts 19. But they had not been baptized based on the saving grace of Yeshua. Paul did not accept them as saved. So the elements of both repentance from sins and trust in Christ are needed. Both elements. Now I've read numerous articles from pastors explaining that repentance and faith in Christ is the same thing. That is, repenting is also asking Christ into your heart. See, this is the answer to how one can agree with the doctrine that says salvation comes from Christ alone by grace, but to somehow, at the same time, uh, avoid the issue of repentance as an active ingredient of salvation. You know, I would think by now... In Acts, you've seen that this in no way lines up with Holy Scripture. Repentance means 
that you not only acknowledge that you are a sinner, but that you sincerely intend to stop sinning. The truth is, you don't need Yeshua to see that. What you need is the law of Moses. And you don't need Yeshua in order to repent. John the Baptist was our best example of this. But once you repent and you determine to live righteously, you still owe God a debt for all the sins you committed. See, repentance does not pay for your sins. Repentance only admits your sins and forces you to face the consequences. So the next step after repentance is to find the way to pay for those sins. We learn in Leviticus that God says the only means to pay for sins in a way that provides divine forgiveness is a sinless creature must die. Well, I guess that leaves out the sinner, doesn't it? The only solution is an innocent substitute. For centuries, innocent animals were killed and laid on the altar as substitutes for sinners. With the advent of Messiah, he became the innocent substitute for us all. But we have to acknowledge that. And we have to accept what he did for us in dying on the cross in order for it to become effective. Then when we are immersed into that reality, then we're saved. Yet scripture makes it certain. We can't skip over the repentance and then go straight to the salvation. But I can tell you I've run across many people who are convinced that they can do just that. They can pray to receive Jesus and just intentionally go right on sinning as before because they're saved. These are the ones that are often labeled in modern times as unvictorious Christians. To my way of thinking, and according to the scripture, the term unvictorious Christian is an oxymoron. See, when we repent and we are saved, we are handed a victory of eternal magnitude. Unvictorious means one of the elements is missing. Verse 21 repeats Paul's formula for salvation. He says, turn from sin and put your trust in the Lord. He does not say that turning from sin is putting your trust in the Lord. Turning from sin is an act of the human will. You must decide. Trust in the Lord for forgiveness of sins is an act of divine grace. Both elements are required. Now with that out of the way, Paul announces to the Ephesian elders that he's going to Jerusalem. But he has trepidation about it all. He is expecting something bad 
to happen along the way. Because he says, in every city he visits, the Holy Spirit keeps warning him about going to Jerusalem. Now very probably what this means is that there are believers who prophesy to him that they see trouble ahead for him. So the message is so consistent wherever he goes, he's taking it seriously. Paul is looking to the future. But what he couldn't reckon was the timing of it. That is perhaps one of the biggest frustrations that that believers face. We sense in our spirits something is coming. Something's coming. It's the when of it that's usually not very clear. And that when could be sooner, could be years beyond what we're thinking. In fact, even though Paul was so certain he was never going to return to Ephesus, his epistles show us that in fact he did. Now because Paul felt he wouldn't be coming back to Ephesus, he wants to declare that he has given everything the Lord has told him to give to the people of Ephesus. He has told them how to be forgiven, and you know what, if they want to ignore it, then it's not his responsibility. Or, in the common Hebrew Hebrew expression of that day, their blood is on their own heads. But now, a warning. The elders need to pay attention and take, take constant heed because evil is coming. Paul is speaking to who? The leadership. Paul is speaking to the leadership. He lapses now into metaphors that Yeshua often used. Those of the sheep and the shepherd. Paul says he is certain that wolves are going to come in and attack the flock. These elders before him, they're the shepherds of the flock. It's their job to be vigilant and to deal with these wolves however it has to be done. In fact, the attacks won't always come from outsiders. Sometimes members of their own group will betray them and become perverse. They will teach deviance. They will teach corruption as truth with the goal of pulling disciples away for themselves. I have little doubt that the Torah scholar Paul has Yeshua's exhortation in mind as he pours out his heart and his fears to these leaders of the congregation of Ephesus. In John 10, 14 through 17, we read, For I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life on behalf behalf of the sheep. Also, I have other sheep which are not from this pen, and I need to bring them. And they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. We will finish chapter 20. Get well into chapter 21 next time.